This is Grace Talks, a production of Simpson United Methodist Church in Bangor, Michigan. Today's scripture, taken from the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, we'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful of your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, some of you might know me well, but as a friend of mine once said, come in and know me better, man. Still, some of you may ask, who is this silly person standing before you? Well, there was a time that those who knew me might call me a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, a squeezing, retching, grasping, scraping, clutching clutching, covetous old sinner. I'm none other than Ebenezer Scrooge, a moneylender and a hard-faring one at that, and there are those who would accuse me of usury, of offering people loans who couldn't easily afford to pay them back at high returns. Oh yes, I sent more than a few struggling debtors to the workhouses and the prisons, men and women with families who were trying with all their might to make ends meet. My worker, you might know him, one Bob Cratchit, a small man with a family dependent on the meager wage that I offered him, a sum that could only be described as a poor man's wage. But what choice did he have? Apart from me, he knew it. And that's why he put up with me for so long. My story, well, you might know it, begins on a Christmas Eve many years ago in London town. 
It begins with two gentlemen who came to my door to ask me, of all people, for donations. And I'll never forget that silly man's words. At this festive season of the year, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Why many thousands are in want of common necessities, and hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts. You see what they were trying to do, don't you? They were trying to make someone else's problems my problem. But I saw through them, and I knew the only way up was to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's how I made it in life. It's how I ended up where I am, financially secure. So I teased them with my questioning. Are there no prisons? Yes. Uh, the union workhouses, are they still in operation? Yes. The treadmill, the poor in law, are they still in full vigor? And of course, they gave me yes once again, and I narrowed my trap closer and closer. And finally, I snapped it shut when they told me that there were many who couldn't go to these places because of their dignity or their pride. Some would rather die than go there, they cried out in protest, and how I remember my words. So cruel now, but so sensible then. If they'd rather die, then they'd better well do it and decrease the surplus population. What business was it of mine if they couldn't feed their families? They shouldn't have reproduced if they couldn't provide. They should have planned better. That's no concern of mine if they can't feed their families. Oh, I was in quite a mood, and no less was my, no less was my mood darkened than when Bob Cratchit, of all people, had the nerve to presume to ask me for the following day off. Oh, if it's quite convenient, sir. Of course it's not convenient. It's not convenient and it's not fair. If I were to refuse to pay him that day's wages for no labor, well, then I'd be the bad guy. Oh, but every year I'm forced to pay him a day's work for no work. Later that night, I had my meal in my usual dour tavern, and I took to my room at the usual hour in a room that once belonged to my old partner, Jacob Marley, who had been dead these seven years, and, oh yes, I should add, Jacob Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatsoever about that, old Marley was dead. And if that fact isn't laid out in the rest of what happens will be no different than anything else. He was dead, and that's why it was so shocking and so disquieting when I walked home and I found his face staring back at me from the door knocker upon my arrival home. And later that apparition was repeated when, in the night, I was startled by the sound of a ringing bell, but not just a ringing bell, but seemingly all of them all at once in my own home. And then, and then it got worse. 
The sound of a heavy chain made its way through my home, and soon the cellar door opened, and none other than Jacob Marley, my old partner, was standing there before me, telling me that it is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide, and if the spirit doesn't do it in life, it's condemned to do it in death. It's doomed to wander through the world and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned it to happiness. Jacob, you see, was carrying with him a long chain. And he told me it had been forged in his life, forged from acts of greed and acts of malice, moments of apathy towards his fellow man, all seemingly small and insignificant moments, but here at once long and terrible. But what could be worse than this? Well, it's that he told me that my chain was just as long as his seven years past. But how much longer was it now? But you were a good man of business, I shouted. Business? Mankind was my business, said he. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence, these were my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Why was it that I walked through crowds with my eyes turned down and never rose them to that blessed star which led wise men to a poor abode? Were there no, were there no poor homes where its light would have conducted me? As Marley told me, I had only one chance, one single hope of escaping this same fate, carrying my own long chain. He told me that night after night I would be visited hour after hour and spirits would come. And as if to seal this frightening deal, this apparition took me to the window to show me the world as it really was, and there I saw. The air was filled with phantoms. And I heard the incoherent sounds of lament, sounds of regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory, why the air was filled with these phantoms, and Marley told me this was the fate of the condemned. And what happened next? Well, for that you'll have to wait. For this story is longer than a single sermon can cover, and indeed more of it I'll share with you in the days ahead, but for now, a word and a reflection. You may not believe it, but that's a very hot coat. A Christmas Carol was published in 1843. It was written by Charles Dickens, and it stands as one of the most popular pieces of the Western canon, with roughly 140 films or television adaptations having been made, and nearly 1,000 adaptations made for stage, music, radio, comic book, and virtually every other medium in existence. In fact, next to the Bible, 
A Christmas Carol is the single most adapted story in the history of the world. Now, as for the story itself, it stands in that awkward place between secular and Christian. The story carries all throughout it this deeply Christian message, but so too does it carry a sense of the shared responsibility and experience of humanity as it expresses a sort of, a sort of shared responsibility of the everyman to care for their fellow human in common identity that extends, expands beyond mere Christianity. The themes of the book involves critiques of both the industrial era, era of the mid-1800s England and the rising tide of what would come to be known and understood as capitalism in the years after. Similarly, the story deals with themes of legacy and greed and apathy and the question of what it is that unmakes a man, what is it that makes a man greedy, and how is it that that man can be redeemed. Broken into five staves, or chapters, whatever we prefer to call them, it tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, a wealthy miser who makes his money off the misery of others in the form of usury. Usury was an antiquated term originating in Christian ethics, and it describes the sinful practice of loaning money in such a way that it preys on the poor and the struggling. In essence, the loaner would be given a loan of some sums, let's say $100, but they would hike the interest rate up to an unreasonable amount so that the person paying it back was forced to pay sometimes double or triple the original value. In other words, usury was the student loans of history. Now, obviously, the idea of this as a sin has fallen by the wayside in recent years, in no small part due to, well, our own Protestantism, but also a, also a contributing factor was the development of Christianity in America, which saw usury become almost essential to what our economy was founded on. In fact, all the sins as all the sins of Scrooge were written as exaggerated descriptions of an archetypal character, a stereotype, someone who couldn't possibly exist, but now seem almost quaint. Many of the very feelings that Scrooge holds and communicates almost seem to be regular practices and thoughts today, some of which are almost held as virtues. This idea of bootstrap mentality or rugged individualism and the well-worn idea that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, the thought that if you agree to work for someone, then somehow you've made a choice to be abused and you deserve to be taken advantage of because that's just the cost of advancement. The story progresses with Scrooge, the penny-pinching miser who lives a life that imposes misery onto everyone else through both action and influence. And as the story goes on, and as he meets a series of spirits or ghosts, depending on where you are in the story, Scrooge ends up finding redemption in what can only be described as a come-to-Jesus moment. 
He sees by the end of the book all of the things that he has done and all of the things that his actions have caused and the potential of what changing his ways could do. Scrooge learns that if he's less greedy and less harmful towards others, then he might be remembered kindly when he is gone. He learns that if he provides a living wage to Bob Cratchit, that his son, Tiny Tim, might actually survive past the next year. The biggest parallel in this story is... The biggest parallel in this story to scripture is Jesus's passage or Jesus's parable of the rich man and Lazarus in chapter in Luke chapter 16, but in the biblical parable what we find is that the rich man is told that he cannot go and warn his friends of the impending danger that they face. Instead, here in the Christmas carol, the rich man is allowed to go and tell his friend of the danger that he faces. Jacob Marley, who might be likened to the rich man, is able to return and warn Scrooge of what is coming. And in the end, because of it, Scrooge finds redemption and a new lease on life, a life focused on love and charity and respect for other people. It's one of my favorite stories, and it's a story that I've read year after year, and a story that I've definitely watched more than a few adaptations of, my favorite still being A Muppet Christmas Carol. The first stave, which I recited today, or at least a part of in another adaptation of it, has Scrooge meeting the spirit of his old friend, Jacob Marley, who's been dead seven years, And what we find when Scrooge meets him is that he is a man who is carrying chains that extend beyond the room, which represents the chains that Marley wrapped himself up in through his greed and arrogance and inaction and apathy to the affairs and well-being of other people. And this, Jacob Marley tells Scrooge, is the fate of the condemned to carry the chains of their sin and to be forced to see the misery and the suffering that they have caused and to be unable to affect it. They are forced to go into the world and to see what they could have done had they chosen to act, and in turn are condemned only to be able to see and remain powerless. This is, of course, just an imagined vision of what suffering might look like in the afterlife, but it's a powerful one. It's a haunting one. There's a reason why this is considered one of the first ghost stories. The story is ultimately one of redemption. It's a story of repentance and reconciliation. And though I don't want to spoil too much of it, if that's possible, suffice to say that the transformation displayed is a good example of why this story has been adapted and influenced or has been so adapted so many times and has been so influential upon other stories 
It doesn't take much thought to think of other stories that follow in the same footsteps as this one, many of them Christmas movies, such as A Wonderful Life or The Grinch or even A Miracle on 34th Street. But even arguably stories like Groundhog's Day show their influence in this. And if we think about it, I'm sure we can come and find a hundred other examples. A Christmas Carol is a story that is deeply Advent-like in its delivery as it prepares the reader's heart for transformation. The entire theme of Advent, after all, is preparing our hearts for the arrival of Christ. It is hope in the face of hopelessness. It is a promise of joy in a world that is all too often joyless. Because even though here at the beginning of the story we find Scrooge and he is in a miserable state and he is causing misery upon virtually everyone he meets from his nephew to Bob Cratchit and the two men who come to him looking for charity, there are still those seeds of a man transformed that are being laid. I think the fact that this story has caught on in such a way is a display of our desire to see transformation in the world and to hear stories of how it is that people can be transformed for the better. How it is that people can change in ways that make them, or I'll say here, us, because in many ways this is a story about us, how it is that we can experience change in ways that make us more loving and more charitable and more concerned with the mutual aid of others and more Christ-like and more loving and more complete. The passage of scripture that we read today has Jesus describing the coming of the Son of Man, and that is the entire message of Advent, that Jesus is coming and prepare your hearts for this news. Here in A Christmas Carol, what we prepare for is the coming of the redemption of Scrooge. And so I hope that you'll forgive my whimsy. <laughs> I hope that I've captured some degree of interest with this series, and rest assured the dramatic bits aren't going to stop. <laughs> and so until next week, may this tale serve as an invitation for us to grow and find meaning in our own stories, to find that every story has the potential to affect us should we let it, the potential to affect change, the potential to be a means of grace offering us a, a chance at redemption and transformation. Amen. <laughs>